holiday of Passover is about escaping tyranny. So how did we get to where tyranny is so strong today in the 21st century? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Tyranny, it's a very old word. It's in the Bible. Is it now so antiquated that it no longer has meaning? No relevance? Fact is, many people gave their lives fighting tyranny. Is it something that has now been woven into our lives so slowly but steadily that we now operate smoothly, even under tyranny, without a fuss? Democracy in the U.S. has never been so seriously endangered as it is now. Yet, going forward, how likely is preserving democracy to make people passionate? Will saving our republic actually motivate voters? I'm not sure. I'm not sure people care. For a country founded on liberation from British tyranny, the United States seems to have devolved into a land where tyrants rise to power, psychophants blindly follow, and the entire nation, and for that matter the world, suffers. America's founders knew vigilance was essential to keep our republic and to preserve democracy and educated citizenry is essential. <laughs> There's certain powers that hate education, as we will discuss. When the orange tyrant wannabe says he loves the uneducated, this is exactly what he's talking about. On this show, we'll look at why tyranny is so easily accepted, especially in an age of instant gratification, and how citizenship is not a spectator's sport. Our guest today is Andrew Fiala, whose new book is titled Tyranny, From Plato to Trump's Fools, Psychophants, and Citizens. What is it about tyranny through the ages that makes it perpetually attractive, yet extremely dangerous to so many people, even those who so passionately embrace it? And what happens if attempts to impose tyranny and overthrow our republic go unpunished? Then what? Boy, these are interesting times. Our guest today is Andrew Fiala. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Bert. Andrew Fiala is professor of philosophy and director at the Center for Ethics at California State University, Fresno, scholar of ethics, political philosophy, and the philosophy of religion, and particularly a prominent thinker of nonviolence and pacifism, who was a past president of Concerned Philosophers for Peace. He has written a number of books, including a widely used ethics textbook, called Ethics, Theory and Contemporary Issues. It's now in its ninth edition. Well, as we are taught in school, democracy has its roots in ancient Greece. As America's founders knew, their philosophy remains eternally applicable. It was the ancient Greeks who gave us the language to discuss such events as the January 6th insurrection. The words you use in your subtitle, tyrant, psychophant, and moron, what you call the tragic trio. 
You say those terms are most helpful in fully understanding what happened in the lead-up to that day, January 6th. Please tell us about the role each of those three played in that tragedy. Yeah, yes. Thank you. The, uh, you know, you, you've, you've seen the, the key insight I have there, which is that tyrants don't uh, come by themselves. There are always these other characters who accompany tyrants when they rise to power. Um, and you see this, you know, through the history of philosophy and literature and actual real world historical examples of tyrants. The tyrant um, is an individual who wants power for egotistical, prideful purposes. Yeah. You know, the, the tyrant, it's, it's all about the tyrant and it's not about what's right or what's wrong. It's about the tyrant's own selfish pride. Wow. And then along, Go ahead. Oh, what do you, what, should I stop there? <laughs> I want to jump in. Uh, well, I'm I'm just curious. You know, I, I I went to a good public school. I'm pleased to say, and one of the most enduring, sadly, eternally applicable lessons I learned in high school was Plato's allegory of the cave. Rather than my telling it, I'm hoping everybody who's listening knows. But I wonder if you take the honor and share it with listeners and explain in what way it is as the at the essence, the story that's told in that cave of tyranny and democracy. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is uh, the the great story at the heart of Plato's Republic. Um, that's that's trying to explain uh, human nature and the human problem, which is that um, in Plato's allegory, we live in a cave. We are blind to the light. Right. We we look at images on the wall. Um, and we are pretty good at naming and identifying those images, but those images are pale, pale reflections of true reality. And really Plato is suggesting that's sort of like our political reality, right? We, we live in a world of illusions and we don't see beyond those illusions to the truth, to the good, uh, to the, the real light where real things actually exist. And Plato suggests that what has to happen is we need to be enlightened. So somehow, some miracle, and in Plato's story, it is kind of a miraculous occurrence. Someone turns around, looks back behind the screen and sees, oh, there's a much larger world out there. Well, so now this connects to this problem of tyranny because the tyrant, on Plato's view, is really good at manipulating the images in the cave. The tyrant gives us what we want to hear, tells us that we are good, and he tells us that he loves us, and he manipulates images in a way that satisfies us. This is the mob, the, the masses, the crowd. I use the word fools. I use the word morons to describe this. It's all of us, right? We love people who, who, who pull our chains and push our buttons in the right way to make us feel good. And Plato points out that this is all an illusion. You know, the, the tyrant is dealing with the world of images. You know, we could call this 20, 21st century, this is fake news, alternative facts, right? Mm -hmm. This is where we believe conspiracy theories because they satisfy our desire for entertainment and our, our, our dream of believing that the world uh, orient, is oriented around us. And Plato says we need to leave that cave behind, right? We need to look and, and find the truth. And that's what philosophy does. That's what literature does. That's what um, the study of history and the humanities does, is it, it helps us break free of the chains that keep us in this world of illusions. 
people don't want to look behind the illusions. The illusions are so much easier and so much more reassuring. That, that's what we prefer to see. And it's, it's uncomfortable to look beyond the illusions. When the people in the cave crawled out of the cave, the sun was extremely bright. It was hard for them to adjust. It's so much easier just to stay in the cave and uh, accept yeah. what, what we're handed. Yeah, no, you're, you're right about it. This is the, the challenge is we, we prefer our comfortable illusions. People have been talking about this and commenting on this for 2,500 years. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, uh, I mean, we could, I could go through the whole history of philosophy and basically tell you that that's, that that's a common theme. And really that the heart of that is the difficult and kind of agonizing pursuit of self-knowledge. Um, the hardest thing of all is to look in the mirror, <laughs> you know, and, and there's one thing to leave the cave is another thing to look in the mirror and realize that you've been a slave to illusions, that you have worshiped false idols, that you have been manipulated by, um, tyrannical personality types. And, you know, this sounds very grandiose, like it's, you know, about, you know, a big political thing. It's as simple as the, the products, you know, on the shelves in our refrigerator. <laughs> you know, we're, we're subject to manipulation and advertising, marketing, um, and we, you know, we love Pepsi instead of Coke or whatever. There's no substance to that. <laughs> you know, uh, we live our lives with all kinds of illusions. And the tyrant and his henchmen know how to, how to use that against us. They know how to, how to sell us a bill of goods uh, and manipulate us. And then when you wake up and look in the mirror, it, it can be quite devastating. Yeah. And, then, you know, this is politically bo on both sides of the aisle. I mean, it happens in families and in businesses where, you know, you, you believe something and then you find out it wasn't true. Man, that's difficult uh, psychologically and spiritually to deal with that awakening. Yeah, and it's easily manipulated and used. And uh, it makes me think of, you know, people uh, just not not getting what the image, what's behind the image. And I consider myself a dedicated patriot, seeing people on January 6th carry the American flag and the Trump flag, the same people carrying a Trump flag and the American flag. Uh, I think the word for that, for me, was cognitive dissonance. Tyranny <laughs> is the opposite of what America has always aspired to. How do the Trumpists imagine they are being patriots? And bizarre to me. Yeah, yeah. No, well, you know, part of the the difficulty is that um, truth and reality are so polarized now, where each side tells a story about their side and the nation and the other side that really sort of makes it hard. To, to find out reality, to find the truth in all of that, right? And again, I think it, it's, it, it's, it occurs on both sides, but where we saw this, um, you know, come to a, a horrifying head was on January 6th, where, as you said, you know, these, these folks, on, on my view, deluded, thought that somehow the Constitution was getting in the way of their, their man's desire to, to remain president. Um, you know, all the, the, the strange uh, machinations about what Mike Pence could have done and right. how the constitutional system could have been altered somehow. That, you know, that just seemed to me crazy. But, of course, those folks believed it. Right. So that's the real puzzle in this is that that it's it's not um, 
uh, it's not that they were, uh, I don't know, somehow uh, un- unmotivated or unaware of the system. They actually believed the narrative that was that was told to them. This is the so-called big lie, right? Mm-hmm. People believe things that turn out to be false. And we do this all the time, and it's it's a deep deep problem in human nature. Um, mm. and, and we all have that. We all have this problem where we we want to believe what we want to believe. Right. <laughs> um, you know, the philosopher comes along and says, "Hey, wait a minute. Are we so sure about this? Let's let's do a little critical inquiry. Let's look in the mirror. Let's try to wake up." And it's really really difficult to do that. And then people, as you know, we've we've seen this. Then people double down on yes. this, right? So yes. then they tell a lie about the lie. <laughs> you know. And then you you spin this whole web of of misinformation and this uh, you know kind of dystopian world where up is down and black is white. Um, you know, George Orwell talked about this. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, this is this is the heart of of the human problem: our tendency to to believe falsehoods and then uh, lash out against people who who want to pop our bubbles and burst our illusions. Yeah, there does seem to be a lot of that. There's a lot of that going around, like some disease. And uh, I, I just, I still, you know, as you said, the the Trumpists on, on January 6th were, they wanted the Constitution to get out of the way so that their guy could be basically a, a dictator. So in that case, how can they call themselves patriots? I mean, the Constitution is at the foundation uh, of who we are, I, I that confuses me. I mean, I can understand them wanting to get, uh, you know, their guy in power forever, and have a uh, you know a long uh, tradition of, of Trumpists in power. But how can they call themselves patriots? I, I just it still baffles me. Yeah, well, you know, that word uh, patriotism is uh, easily abused. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, the, this that famous phrase, you know, the last bastion of scoundrels is patriotism. That you know, there's there's um, let me let me bring in the the other character in my trio, the sycophants. Oh yes, please. These are the yeah, these are the the lawyers, the um, politicians, the people that facilitate tyranny by giving it a veneer of legitimacy, right? So it, you know, it's these are the people who use the word patriotic or who put the symbols in front of. Mm the masses and, and manipulate the way people think about the world and themselves. Um, these are very clever people, right? So this, you know, again, we see this in our business life, in, um, our family life. There are these people who, who spin the lies and tell the tales that allow for the tyrants to amass power. And these folks kind of know better, <laughs> right? So that, you know, they're, they're smart enough to understand how to use the the language and the laws to tell the tale they want to tell. And they also sort of know what the masses want to hear, uh-huh. right? So they speak the language of the masses and the mass, you know, the masses, it's all of us, right? I mean, we're, I'm, I'm in the masses, right? Oh, yeah. we, we just go along with what they tell us because, you know, how do we know? But these clever guys, they, so a word like patriotism, you know, it gets turned into a marketing phrase yes. and it's, it's not critical. It's not, um, it's not even based in reality, right? It's not based in, in true history, nor is it based in the law. And then it becomes this kind of, uh, I don't know, just a, a motivating force, right? Like you are patriotic. And then people say, yes, we are patriotic. And 
They just go along with it instead mm. of thinking about it. Mm. And that's the, that's the real problem. It's a kind of lack of thought in all of this. Well, we're not supposed to think. We're just supposed to follow it. And <laughs> I, am, I remember during Nixon's uh, war on Vietnam, many people saying, well, he knows more than we do. We can't question it. He's got the information. We don't. Boy, that was a way of disempowering the public and, and, and denying that we, the people, had any role whatsoever in this uh, killing machine. And, and to a large extent, it worked. Nixon, the Nixon regime, another example of, uh, of uh, a would-be tyrant who, yeah. um, you know, was, was seeking to amass power, you know, breaking the law in order to, right. to gain power. Um, and as you said, the ordinary person doesn't know what to think. You know, I mean, uh, the ordinary, this is part of the problem is there's this uh, big disconnect between the halls of power and the rest of us. And all we can go on is the information that the middlemen convey to us. Right. But the middlemen are the psychophants. These are the lawyers and the, in the media, you know, including academics, because I'm, I, you know, yep. I think I know what I'm talking about sometimes. <laughs> like <laughs> but it. sometimes I don't, <laughs> right. you know, so... Um, you know, how do we how do we make good judgments in a world with that kind of disconnect? Um, it's a really, really difficult human problem. And how we got here is one thing. How the heck we get out of it? Yikes! It's a little bit, you know, it's a lot scary. It's really a lot scary for those of us who believe in democracy. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about... Uh, the opposite of democracy, tyrants. Our guest today is uh, uh, Professor of Philosophy Andrew Fiala, who has a new book titled Tyranny, From Plato to Trump, Fools, Psychophants, and Citizens. And when the Declaration of Independence stated that King George III was a tyrant, not all signatories to that document agreed. Likewise, though his abuse of power is documented many times, Trump supporters see him as a national hero. Is there any objective definition to which all reasonable people could be expected to agree, or is tyranny ultimately in the eye of the beholder? This is the the difficult question. So, as you point out, um, you know King George of of Britain was viewed as a tyrant, but not by everyone, <laughs> right? Abraham Lincoln, uh, you know, the, the Southerners viewed him as a tyrant. And when Lincoln was assassinated, John yes. Wilkes Booth said, thus always to tyrants, yes. um, invoking the whole history of tyranny. Uh, so, you know, each side picks their hero and villain. Um, and the real question for a philosopher, a political philosopher like myself is, is there any objective reality to all of that. Mm. So I try to give a definition of tyranny where what a real tyrant is, is a person who wants to amass and consolidate power based on their own selfish, egoistical pride, and then actually does that, right? So there's there's some would-be tyrants, and I think I put Trump in the category of the would-be tyrant. He wants power, and he's motivated by pride and self-interest, but luckily he he was not able to consolidate power. Um, you know, there, there are worse examples in history <laughs> of real tyrants who actually consolidate power and and really um, destroy things. You know, you think about Nero and Caligula and 
Julius Caesar and then go all the way back to the ancient Greeks, there's some terrible examples. Um, but so the, the question then that I would have about anyone who is supposed to be a tyrant is what's their motivation, right? Are they, are they focused only on themselves and their own pride? And then how much power do they actually have? Um, in which I, which case I think we need to be more careful using that, that terminology. You know, some people claim that like mask mandates are tyrannical, you know, right, like right. That the government, is, you know, like the, it's, it's being, we're being, uh, there's a tyrant forcing us to get vaccines or something like that. Um, I just don't think the word works in that context. It's not about pride. It's not about, um, a singular ruler, right? Those decisions were made by scientists for our well-being <laughs> it wasn't about you know a mask mandate is not like some individual trying to get rich off of that um at least on my interpretation so i think you know sometimes that word just gets used as a way to abuse people you don't like you call you call your father a tyrant because he won't you know give you the keys to the car <laughs> um, it doesn't fit you know although we can understand why people would use the word that way interesting that it has a a negative connotation that the, the, those uh, people who are freaking out about mask mandates, they call that tyrannical. So they recognize that tyranny is not a good thing. And yet, in other ways, they support it. How fascinating. It's like the word tyranny is something we learn. And oh, yeah, tyranny bad. But the actual tyrant, somehow, they refuse to see. It's remarkable. Yeah, well, you know, this is part of the story is that the tyrant or would-be tyrant tells his followers that they're special and he loves them, you know. And so the tyrant, oddly enough, appeals to the sort of pride and like mini tyrant within the crowd because we want to be loved yes. and valued by the father figure, you know, Um even if the father figure abuses us right. and just think about this, like how this shows up in, in abusive families. It's the bully in the schoolyard who lords it over the, the weak kids and, and has a bunch of fans and followers who are like, yay for the bully. You know, um, this is a common structure in social life. Um, and the guy at the top really doesn't care. Right. It's all about him. And it's usually always a man, by the way. But yeah, um, it's all about, you know, his selfish uh, interests. And the rest of us get confused about reality. You know, we, we think that our abuser loves us, which is so weird, but we know it happens. Hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a very it's a very, very common problem, I think. Yeah, it's been there a lot in history. I, I, I read a book just called 1848 a number of a couple of years ago about uh, uh, the revolutions uh, throughout Europe in 1848. And what amazed me was how the people at the lowest end of the income scale, well, the peasants anyway, were some of the biggest defenders of the aristocrats and the royalty and the tyrant wannabes. I, I, and it, it, fascinating to me because people, you know— Somehow people today at the lower end of the income scale see uh, they don't the word freedom, you know, I think a lot of people see it uh, uh, just as something freedom with no regulations, no requirement that business and industry be at all tethered to the common good. 
And this belief is, of course, related to the thoroughly discredited belief in trickle-down, which somehow people still believe. Uh, the job creators was a word that, that was invented by the marketers, as you know. Mm -hmm. People who often get most screwed by the system are often the most vociferous defenders of the rich and powerful, the economic interests which practice uh, tyranny over our economy and our laws. Talk about this phenomenon, please. Yeah, well, you know, you're right about this, that um, the, the folks you would think would be most opposed to this are sometimes the biggest fans of it, which is, again, the strange problem. Plato, this is the, the problem of the cave we were talking about before, where we are comfortable in our illusions, and those folks who, uh, you know, reinforce those illusions, we view them as heroes. One of the things I, I, I point out in the book is that there's, there's even a God problem here, which is a theological issue, um, where people think of God as a tyrant and think of then like God even using a tyrant here on earth to accomplish, you know, the will of God somehow, which is, in my view, just bad theology. That's <laughs> just a crazy idea. But um, think of how that plays out through, through all of history, back to, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, aristocracy in Europe and the, you know, early modern period, this idea of divine right of kings, that somehow the king is doing God's work on earth, yes. and meanwhile abusing the peasants all the way through, that's such a strange idea, but it's really based on a kind of weird view of the universe, that God himself is a tyrant, <laughs> you know, and uh, we're supposed to worship this tyrannical God because of the power he has. I think we need an alternative story which is, it's not about God's power, but about God's goodness, right? We need, we need to bring ethics and, and objective truth into the matter, which was really what the founders of the, our country were. You know, they, they were educated in a kind of um, critical theological perspective. And I think the founders really thought, you know, that just doesn't work. There's, there's no such thing as a tyrant doing God's will. It's just not the way God set this thing up. <laughs> so they set up a constitution that was not pointed in that direction. But let me, my last thought about this, sure, sure. there there were some claims about Trump, that Trump was God's anointed one. Oh, yes. That, you know, he was the, the savior, you know, a flawed individual who God would be using to do God's work on earth, um, which I think is just a very, very strange theological perspective. I, I, I don't understand it. I think it's probably wrong, wrong theologically, but people believe it. And I think the reason they believe it goes back to this, you know, tendency to, to worship power. Um, if someone is rich and powerful, well, God must be rewarding them somehow and giving right. them their riches and their power. Sure. It's a strange the, idea. The, the elect, you can set, tell people are elect because they have money. And Trump has or at least he pretends to have a lot of money. I think he's exaggerating it a little bit. I think there are people with money who have real class de-emphasize that, but that's another story. Mm -hmm. And uh, the religion, it does seem that, I mean, I know a lot of people grow up with the belief that God is a punishing God, and it's scary, and we're supposed to be God-fearing. And my sense is that maybe they were men <laughs> who in... Uh, you know, after, after uh, the birth of Jesus and, and the development of 
of the church and then the Holy Roman Empire is that they recognize that, aha, this is a way to power. Keep people living in fear. This keeps us in power and sort of uh, 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 enables uh, what could be uh, tyranny, I suppose. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Well, this these would be, in my characters, that would be maybe the, the sycophant yes. who, <laughs> who can manipulate the world to give themselves some power by convincing everyone else that the tyrannical power structure is the righteous one, you know? Um, and you think how, you know, again, oh, wow. you think, think of the history of, of the hierarchical church, you know, it's, yes. the, it's the bishops and cardinals who are convincing the masses that this is just the way it has to be, you right. know? Um, the Reformation comes along and um, the Enlightenment comes along and people think differently about that. And the Catholic Church has evolved itself <laughs> um, it no longer works that way. But, you know, think of the, the, the medieval power structure, right, where um, there are all these apologists, all of these defenders of the status quo, and everyone believed it. <laughs> that's, the, that's, again, that's the really strange thing, is people just accept these things as true, even when they're um, obviously false and they don't, they're not really in people's interest. Yeah. Very, very strange. Um and and again, I think the the solution is you know we need better philosophy, better theology, better religion, <laughs> you know, um, and a different view of. I, again, I would you know we're we're, we're talking right around Easter yes. time, Bert, and you know the Easter story as I interpret it is is different from a punishing God. This is a God who offers forgiveness, um, and who offers some kind of transformation from that old tyrannical God, right? Mm -hmm. There's a new, a new story. It's not a tyrant anymore. <laughs> it's a different view of the divine. Um, and again, you know, this required lots and lots of conversation and education. And most people, it's, it's too complicated. <laughs> and then who has time, yeah, you know, yeah. um, to study theology and think, think all this through? Yes, indeed. And if you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is... Professor Andrew Fiala, whose new book is titled Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fools, Psychophants, and Citizens. He's a uh, professor of philosophy and uh, uh, past president of Concerned Philosophers for Peace. What a concept. Uh -huh. uh, liberty is a word everybody likes, at least in America. It's an important feature of democracy. We need to set our sights, you say, on more than freedom from external constraint. How is moral autonomy distinct from mere liberty and how does how does it help perhaps help help us uh, rise above human flaws moral autonomy mm, this is yeah what a what a great question um yeah this is uh you know political philosophers have been thinking about this for a thousand years thousands of years um what is what is what is freedom what is liberty and how does it connect to restraint and ethical commitment, right? That's kind of the, the, the you know, big question here. Um, there's, a, there's a view of liberty, we'll call it negative liberty, which is just, leave me alone, I'm gonna do whatever I want. That's liberty right. as license, right? You just, just non-interference. Yes. Don't, don't bother me, stay out of my way. Um, that's pretty good for teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're breaking away from your parents or whatever, but then adults, you know, when you grow up, a kind of more mature view of freedom, 
is that freedom requires uh, restraint. And the restraint and the limitation on freedom has to do with ethics, has to do with commitments and promises and obligations. Um, you know, you go to work because your job requires you to go to work and you know it's the right thing to do. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a more mature and I think reasonable kind of freedom, this kind of moral autonomy. It's, it's freedom under the moral law to, to make it sound kind of uh-huh. complicated and abstract. Uh-huh. Um, that's, that's really where adults need to end up. Um, and part, I think part of the difficulty in our world, it's, it's, it's a common difficulty for thousands of years is that that's the hard, that's the hard task is to, to, uh, view yourself as free while also restraining yourself under mora- under morality. Um, and that requires a lot of education and development. And some people never get there, yeah. you know. But let me just say that I think the founding fathers, that was really their view of oh, uh, yes. freedom. It wasn't just license. It was, uh, you know, robust kind of liberty under the moral law. And they thought that the citizens... Again, they, by the way, they had a, a very narrow view of who gets to vote and who gets to participate. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but those folks that they imagined as participating would be educated, autonomous, moral people. That was the, the dream of, of Enlightenment democracy, is that moral people would, would be voting, not the uh, you know, uneducated masses and the solution to the problem of the uneducated masses is to educate them right to make sure that they got some moral education some civic education so they understood their responsibilities as citizens not just their freedom but also their responsibility you know and it does seem fairly clear that the the right that i'm afraid is still seems to be on the uh, ascent uh is Education. They don't want education. They're very much against teaching kids how to think critically. They don't want critical thinking. And I, I do find it fascinating that I think this, this culture war that is gathering steam uh, scares the heck out of me. Uh, but uh, education is elitist. They think educated people are elitist. And what about me? Don't I have just as much rights. I can do whatever the heck I want with my land, put a nuclear waste dump there if I want. Doesn't matter. I have this freedom. FDR recognized that, that uh, capitalism has to be tethered to the common good. I don't, I, what, it's like there's been this war on the notion of common good and, and freedom is like the antithesis of this for a lot of the, the people. And, uh, that must uh, kind of enable a tyrant to uh, use that as well. Yeah, no, I, it's, a, it's a really important point that um, the, the uneducated people, um, the masses, the mob, they're easily taken advantage of by a tyrant who basically tells them that he loves them and that they're beautiful and right. you know, basically panders to them. Um, education... I think is the antidote to that. Yes. But as you point out, it's incredibly politicized. And by the way, it always has been. <laughs> right? So it's not like there was ever a, a, a beautiful golden age of, of education. You know, there were wars about um, teaching evolution in the school yeah. years ago. 
um, there was big, big questions about who could be educated. Women were not invited to the party for right. for centuries. Uh, you know, uh, slaves and then former slaves, African Americans, mm-hmm. were not educated. So I don't, I don't think that our track record is all that great. <laughs> right. <laughs> But democracy no, but, depends no. on educated and an educated populace. Our founders talked about that, how you really can't have democracy without an educated populace. Sorry for interrupting. No, no, no you're, you're exactly right. So it's a, you know, what it is, is it's a, it's a challenge. It's, it's something yeah. we, we have to figure out and we have to do better. Um, and and it's, it's politicized, right? So one person, you know, claims that it's brainwashing and the other person right. claims that it's education. Um, and, you know, that is, again... Really, like my book, and, and, and I've been thinking and talking about this, we're really in the middle of a tragedy. Um, we, ju- we, we don't agree even about what counts as education. Wow. <laughs> so how do we move forward, right? It's just, um, it's not clear. And I, I believe actually we're going to continue to struggle about this because humans always have struggled about this. You know, it's the history of religion, for example, right? You know, which religion is the right religion and which, which side are we going to oppress? And which mm. interpretation of religion are we going to accept? Um, human beings are um, contentious. We, you know, and I, I actually say this in the book that, and part of the issue there is, is Liberty. Yes. You know, we're, we're free. Unlike bees and ants, we just don't go along, <laughs> you yeah. know? So if so, someone says it's white, someone else is going to say it's black, and we're going to argue about that until till the end of time. Um, I'm laughing because not because it's funny, but because it's just frustrating. You know, it's just um, human nature to to disagree about this stuff. And I'll tell you one thing: I've learned about history is that we never learn from history. We don't want to. It's mm. too complicated. It's too disquieting. And speaking of history, I I, I interviewed. Uh, uh, Michael Kazin uh, just a few weeks ago about his new book about how the Democrats have have done well throughout the 19th and 20th century. And he talked about something called moral capitalism, that Democrats need to put that out there, that there has to be some sort of moral capitalism. I don't see that happening so much, but uh, I wonder if Democrats have been kind of AWOL when it comes to focusing on democracy. I mean, a lot of, you know, average people who are fairly well-educated and not to the far right uh, see that uh, we really need to talk about this threat to democracy. And I I don't know if, I've not seen a lot of Democrats uh, talk about this amazing historic threat to our democracy and toward tyranny. What do you see? Well, you know, I, I think that um, January 6th was, like the wake up watershed moment, like, you know, we, we, we're in, we're in uh, dangerous waters here. Yes. And anything could happen in the next two to four years. Um, and I think, you know, the, the alarm bells are ringing. <laughs> we, we need, we need to, to figure out how to, how to move forward and prevent the worst from happening. So I think we probably need some uh, legal, maybe even constitutional reform we could talk a little bit about that if you want yeah. in a moment. But I also think, as you said, this issue of capitalism, I think you call it moral capitalism. Yeah, yeah that's what he called it. You know, we have a, a world with, with growing inequality, vast, vast inequality. 
And the weird story that we're all telling ourselves about this is that those billionaires deserve every penny right. they've earned. Right. Uh, and we've, we've, we've created a cult of celebrity worship and wealth worship, which is really, really dangerous <laughs> because, you know, that's, and that's all the way back to the ancient Greeks, right? It's, it's, um, because just because you're rich and powerful does not mean you're good. Yeah, really? <laughs> you know, easy way to put it. But we somehow think that those rich and powerful people are good. And really, you know, what they're mostly interested in is their own pride and amassing more wealth at the expense of everyone else. So I think part of the, the, the problem of the last five to 10 years is that there's a backlash against this, this growing inequality and people are looking for a solution. And Donald Trump came along and he was one of those billionaires, but he, he sort of spoke differently. You know, he, he told some really unhappy people that um, he was on their side. Um, And that message is a, is a good one. I think, I mean, like not, not necessarily that Trump is the right messenger for that, but you know, we, we need to, to, to let the guys at the bottom of the pyramid know that, that, you know, that we have their back somehow. Um, but the system doesn't seem to be set up so well for, for folks at the bottom. And Democrats could be talking about that. And we used to be the dependable advocate party of the working people. And then when the Clintons came along in the 90s, they just, ah, the money is there for the, from the rich people. Let's just go there. And uh, I don't know. I don't see the the, the Democratic leadership going there. And it's like, really, it's very scary. They're letting opportunities go by. And, you know, I wonder if you were to ask an average person, yeah, we're losing our democracy. Is that going to motivate you to come out and vote? I'm not sure that it will. There's always pocketbook issues. But I don't know if if this is something that's resonating with people. What do you see? Yeah, you know, it's hard it's hard to say and I think you have to be careful about, you know, reading people's minds. Oh, yeah, <laughs> of course. But um, you know, uh I I, I my, my so I teach at a working class university. Um our yeah. students are first generation students. They are struggling and they ha- the pandemic has really been been difficult for them and their families. Yes. And I think they're coming out of the pandemic feeling just terribly disappointed with, with life. Um, you know, education has been difficult, jobs have been lost and there was a a support net, you know, there was some, some bailout money and, you know, uh, family assistance, but that's all gone away now. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking like, shoot, if those people at the bottom end don't get some support with inflation kicking in, right. We're going to have a bunch of really angry and disengaged young people, um, and they're they're going to be susceptible to the the messaging of someone that you know tells them that they're special. <laughs> um, and I, I, my point about that is that it's not enough to just tell them that they're special. You actually have to help them, you know, and and give them a way to to improve their lives and have hope about the future. And then, if you don't mind me saying, you layer in some of the other things we've been talking about, like climate change and climate pessimism. Young people are afraid of the future. And then throw in all the racial tensions we've been talking about in our country. And young people of color are quite disengaged. I have a number of them, you know, our class, our our, uh, 
our university has a, a lot of people of color as among our students, they do not have a, have a happy view of the world. Right. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's really quite worrying, you know, to have a, a democracy you also have, have to have trust and faith and hope. And I'm not convinced that young people have that as much as they should. Um, it's, it's very difficult and, and worrying. Yeah, it is. And, and as a left-leaning Democrat, it frustrates the heck out of me that there's a huge demographic that we are missing. You know, it, 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 it's like, you know, we're scared to upset the, the sources of money. I don't know. I just think the, the possibilities for, for inspiration and passion are there. But, and, and people like Bernie Sanders and others are speaking to it. But I, I, the, the party itself just seems to be missing it. And we got an election coming up in just a few months, and I am, dare I say, worried. And just, just there's the moral aspect that, that we've touched on a bit. Most presidents see an important part of the job as being a moral leader. It just It's a given that part of your being a president is a moral leader to exemplify the morals of, of the country. Uh, you say that Trump is morally inarticulate, and you can't lack, contrast his lack of moral vocabulary with that of other recent presidents. How is he qualitatively different from his predecessors in this respect? Is there any evidence that he has any morals at all? <laughs> um, yeah, thank, thank you. You noticed that, that, that argument in my book. Um, I have an appendix in the book where I I, I did an analysis of Trump's writings, his Twitter feed, the books that um, he wrote or had ghost written for him, the speeches that he gave, right. the inauguration speeches. I mean, I, I looked through his writings, and I was looking for moral vocabulary. Yeah. So, you know, I'm searching for words like <laughs> ethics, integrity, uh, and so on. And what, what I found is he, he really just does not use moral language. And when he does, it almost always has a connection to real estate value, to market value. Uh -huh. You know, like there, this joke ratings. about the golden rule. Yeah, rating. You know, he, he makes this joke about the golden rule that he who has the gold makes the rule. Yeah. You know, um, and he's, he, he literally says this a number of times. And people buy it. And, it's, and they do it and they love it and they laugh because it's very cynical. Um, totally different from anyone else that I can think of that's been president of the United States. So you could compare it to Obama or George W. Bush, uh -huh. bipartisan, right? Yeah. George, George W. Bush was very good at using the language of morality, right? He, in fact, to justify the wars that he fought, which I'm, I think were morally problematic, but nonetheless, he used moral language to justify those wars. And, you know, this, the idea of compassionate conservatism, all of that, right, right. um, and, and also, you know, whatever you think of George W. Bush, he, he could use the language of religion. He understood the legal framework. He could, you know, he could articulate constitutional principles, mm. uh, you know, obviously not as eloquent as Obama. Um, but, you know, that's what, we're, that's what we expect from the president, or at least that's what I expect from a president of the United States. And Trump is different. And people loved him. That's what's really puzzling, you know. Uh, people were like, you know, I love Trump because he's not one of those eggheads who always talk <laughs> about morality or religion or whatever, you know. Um, and I find that to be, again, like the common human 
and dangerous problem is people sort of like the know nothing, right? We we have a strange fascination for uh, ignoramuses who have lots of power. Yes, um, and they're very very dangerous, and and people are resentful towards the eggheads who lecture to them and dare to lecture that to them about morality or religion. Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Big problem. Plato, Plato, by the way, knew this too, right? Plato predicted that the tyrant would be the person who speaks the language of the masses. Um, And of course, you know, the philosopher on the sideline eventually gets killed in in Plato's story um, because the masses don't want to hear it from the philosophers or the moralists. Mm. Common problem of of our human history. Wow, there are yeah, it's it's been there a while, and the uh, the power that is there in you know and just saying stuff like whoever has the gold makes the rules. It people like that. You're right, and one of the things about Trump, I think that the aspects of him perhaps best illustrated by that incredible photo op where he's brandishing a Bible upside down, by the way, mm-hmm. in front of St. John's Episcopal Church during the George Floyd protest. He used theology quite well. I mean, the, the evangelicals have been a big part of his base, but he didn't use it to promote a moral code, just his absolute power. Going back in history, how did leaders of the founding generation, our founders, engage with uh, Bible and notions of absolutism? Yeah, yeah, you're you're right about Trump, right? That it's it's sort of religion as prop in a way. Um, uh, the founders were different, you know. John Adams, for example, who's a fascinating figure, you know, he, I mean, he he was educated in the religious tradition. He was educated in the legal tradition, you know, he, Adams, when you look at his writings, you know, there, there are deep and serious arguments and and levels of inquiry there. Same is true with Thomas Jefferson. I don't think George Washington as much, um, but Benjamin Franklin also, you know, these guys, they studied um, ancient history, ancient literature. They were really fascinated by um, what the Greeks had discovered or had learned, but they also knew modern theology. Um, and then of course they knew modern philosophy. So, you know, they studied John Milton and they studied John Locke. Um, these guys, and, and they gave arguments. That's what I think is very important. Um, the kind of the, the tyrant type, the person I'm talking about is a tyrant. There's really no argument. It's just flowery language mm. that makes people feel good. And it doesn't move your mind, it moves your heart, right? And the tyrant mm-hmm. is really good at that language of love. <laughs> you know, the, the tyrant is beloved and the tyrant loves the crowd and it's all a, a happy love fest. Mm-hmm. And there's no arguments. <laughs> there's no, there's no um, rationality. The founders uh, actually were quite different than that, at least, you know, when they write the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Think about the kinds of arguments that are made in the Declaration and then in the Federalist Papers and all of this documentation that accompanies the Constitution, these were serious intellects who were struggling with big issues in ethics, politics, and religion. Um, and I think you know that's what what we need to to, to look at as a model is we need we need to think carefully, we need to study deeply, 
and reflect and make arguments. Mm. But again, it's really difficult. <laughs> and, and a lot of people are like, eh, it's too hard. Yeah. And maybe they lack the education and the vocabulary to do so. And then someone comes in from the wings who doesn't talk like Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> who doesn't make arguments like John Adams, who's not like, you know, Madison and Hamilton, you know, someone comes in who just basically, you know, yells and waves flags and, and, and symbols and, and the people love it. And I think this again is bipartisan, right? Cause you could imagine something similar happening on the left in our, you know, culture of celebrity. Yes. Um, you know, we're just, we're just fascinated by spectacle and, and it's difficult to think. <laughs> um, yeah. Common human problem. Plato, Plato recognized it. We were seeing it play out in front of our very eyes. I must tell you that when I was running for re-election to the state Senate, I was at a factory gate and, you know, just talking to people and a woman comes out, stops for a second, says, I like your smile. I'll vote for you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as you say, hearts and minds, people, everybody has a heart. And I think maybe that's what people connect with. It's so much more easy. And not everybody exercises their minds. And, I, you know, do they see education as something still valuable? I'm not sure they do. And I'm just curious, what might there have been changes to the founding document that might bolster its protection of democracy uh, and improve its structural safeguards against tyranny? Yeah, thank you for, thank you for the, bringing that up. Um, the, you know, I argue that, that the American Constitution is pretty good at preventing tyranny. So that founding generation, they were very concerned with the tyrannies that they saw in Europe, and they were trying to prevent that from happening here. So the checks and balances, the um, separation of powers, regular elections, all of that stuff is designed to prevent any one party or person from gaining absolute power. I think there's some wisdom in that system. Of course, it was flawed from the beginning. <laughs> because slavery was woven right into it. You know, our, you could almost explain the electoral college system and the Senate structure and all the rest of it as part of a compromise that was designed to get the slave states to agree to uh, the system. And it took four score and seven years until finally that part of the Constitution was improved. And we made continued improvements along the way including, you know, 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote and so on and so forth. So it's a, you know, it was, it's, a, it's a wise system because of the separation of powers, and we've improved it over time. So it wasn't perfect in the beginning. Right. I think that's really important, you know, because we, there's this kind of originalist claim, you mm. know, that, you know, we need to go back to the original Constitution. I would say no way. Right, right, right. <laughs> the original Constitution, you know, women were not invited and there was slavery. We're not, we don't want to go back to that. No. So then we should think about ways we can improve the system. And, uh, you know, I think there are some things that, that we should think about. Like, for one, we, you know, what about limiting terms for Supreme Court justices? Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that doesn't even think requires a constitutional amendment. That could just be, you know, a kind of pass a law about that. Um, I mean, that, that would help to solve some of the high stakes that show up in presidential elections, because, you know, if you can get in there and get control of the Supreme Court, well, yeah. you, you can change law for, for a generation, you know, um, and, and, and so on. So I think we need to know it wasn't perfect at the beginning and right. we can improve it. 
It was aspirational. It's always been aspirational. And you point out about uh, uh, the courts, the, uh, the, the religious nationalists of Trump and Bill Barr uh, saw that the electoral process was too challenging. They packed the courts, and they've very successfully circumvented the democratic process through taking over the courts. And uh, that's it's sort of out of sight and therefore out of mind. Well, I, your writing is generally hopeful. What signs of hope do you see for preserving democracy and steering away from the easy option of hoping for a beneficent tyrant to take care of us all? Where's the hope? Yeah, I, yeah. Where's the? <laughs> well, it's it's a, it's a moderate hope. Okay, so um, I'm not. I, I've been accused of being an optimist, <laughs> and take that. I resent that accusation. <laughs> I'm a I'm a philosopher, not an optimist, and and philosophers have always kind of had a tragic view of life. You know, um, mm. Plato Plato proposed the philosopher king, but he knew it would never happen. Right. It was. It's almost a joke, I think, in Plato. Um, so mm. I think if, if there is hope, it, it's, it's the hope that we, that, that some kind of rationality, some kind of reasonable, uh, kernel exists in our humanity that, that people can be made more reasonable. Um, it's a very, very slow process. It's like mind by mind, person by person, mm. you know, through conversation and education, we can get people to turn away and like back to Plato's cave. We start, you know, bits and pieces of enlightenment can happen. Um, but it's an ongoing process and there's always the risk that things won't work out, you know? So January 6th last year, I'm watching the television thinking, Oh my God, history is in the making yeah. and it could have gone any way, you know, things, things could have gone quite differently. And one of the stories I tell in the book is that Mike Pence, oddly enough, yes. you know, turned out to be a, a hero on that day. Um, even though I think there's, you know, he's a problematic character in the whole thing, but, um, you know, so good things can happen and we have, I guess the other bit of hope is we have made progress. So back to eliminating slavery and giving women the right to vote and trying to work beyond Jim Crow, you know, we, we have made improvements in our world and that's important to recognize that there's a kind of doom and gloom scenario where, Oh my God, we're in. This is the worst that it's ever been. This is not the worst mm-hmm. that it's ever been. Things were much worse in 1820 <laughs> than they are in 2020. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, we need to have a little, a little historical perspective, and then a, a kind of modest idea about what progress we can make. But without that, then then it's very 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 dark. Because if we don't have any hope at all, we all give up. In which case, the tyrant wins. And we've seen progress. It's not like there hasn't been. We have seen it. It is there. Fascinating discussion. Very interesting. Our guest has been Andrew Fiala. His new book is Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fools, Psychophants, and Citizens. Thank you very much. And I tend to be an optimist, too. Sometimes I wonder how, but uh, being a uh, liberal Democrat in New Hampshire, one has to be. (laughs) (laughs) Bert, thank you for having me on. It was wonderful talking with you. Likewise. Thank you. Time to rock your vanity. Time to rock your vanity.